Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We are also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Uh, we have a title to recap from Felix Oje Aliasim, his second career singles title. And we're also happy to welcome back one of our favorite longtime guests of the podcast. She's a tennis commentator and host who's worked who has worked for the BBC, Tennis TV, Amazon Prime, Wimbledon, Australian Open Radio, and so much more. Abigail Johnson, uh, great to be joined by you on the podcast again. And it's great to be back. Thank you very much for that lovely intro. I will be back in future after that one. Ben is so good. He's so good with the intros. It's just, it's smooth, you know? Thank you. Um, hey, Abigail, it's been it's been a while since we've chatted with you, I feel like. And it certainly seems like your career as a tennis commentator has really taken off in that time. Um, why don't you start by bringing our listeners up to speed with uh, what you've been up to this year and how things are progressing for you professionally? Yeah, absolutely. I was feeling that myself. I think I think it has been a little while since I was last with you. And uh, it's been a, a really good year, very enjoyable year for me with some great opportunities. Uh, started on the other side of the world, down under for the Australian Open, where I did the AO radio commentary with a great team there and uh, a brilliant tournament all round to kick off the season. Uh, since then, I've got a lot of involvement here in the UK in terms of getting across uh, local events. I say local events, but events in the country and uh, the UK Pro League which runs year round that Emma Raducanu and Liam Brody won in the summer of 2020 I'm the main commentator for that so we'll have weeks of that sporadically uh, throughout the season and uh, I just try and match that up with with other bits and other opportunities that I get I'd say the huge one for me this year was getting on the BBC broadcast team for Wimbledon because that was essentially the dream that started my journey before I'd ever I don't know been paid for a piece of tennis writing or before I'd ever got on a microphone before I said I want to broadcast for the BBC at Wimbledon so to to tick that one off and to get to work with a a wide range of people and commentate from these incredible uh, commentary boxes with uh, brilliant views that was uh, a definite highlight for me I got to do the second week for live at Wimbledon radio as well and yeah, just a, a great vibe, a great atmosphere, an incredible tournament. And uh, yeah, it's been months throw up very different things. I just like to stay involved in the game as much as I can in any way, whether that's broadcasting, social media, uh, bringing a profile to these lower level events. Uh, I'm just passionate about the sport and, and want to keep doing what I'm doing. Well, it's incredibly well-deserved, and uh, we, we love to see it over here, and happy Thank to have you. you back on. Yeah, and uh, y- you know, it's later in the season. We're always looking for fun storylines to follow, and it's always big Canadian news uh, when we get a titleist in our country. Felix Ogiali-Yassim picked up his second career singles title just this past week, uh, beating J.J. Wolf in straight sets uh, to win Florence. Um, you know, it's later in the season just your thoughts here it feels like felix is really finding his form of late i guess the past month what what are your thoughts just on his progression over the past few weeks here yeah past few weeks and past year to be honest with you i know there have been down moments in the season and mm-hmm. i've got to say i think he got some pretty tough draws at the last two Grand Slams and Wimbledon where he had Maxine Cressy first round and then went out to Jack Draper at the US uh, but uh, this season has reminded me why I was so excited about Felix Ujarelli-Assim when he was first coming through all those years ago the amount that he has to offer and I think this season and we've seen it in the past few weeks it's been coupled with confidence uh, and it's not just the, the 
great play in the forecourt. I think we can put him right up there with the probably the top five volleyers on the on the ATP circuit and kind of play up the court. But I think he's he's a lot more reliable at the back of the court these days. It's very easy to forget how close he was to Rafael Nadal when they faced off at Roland Garros and actually a scary level of being able to hang with him. And I, I think definitely he is more of a threat when he's being kept at the back, able to work his way forwards where he might not have been able to previously. I think the indoor hard courts this past week underlined how much his serve has improved as well, that element of his game. And uh, I think just a big deal for him was uh, winning that title as the top seeds with the target on his back, he, he knocked off a couple of seeds on the way there, Lorenzo Missetti in the semifinals. And mm-hmm. we know the issues he used to have with ATP finals and he reached so many of them before he finally won one. So to be able to go in as the player to be, carry that target, put the tennis he wants to play out on the court and uh, navigate, I think his last three matches and straight sets, uh, impressive stuff from Ujjar Aliasim. And I think there's a lot more to come from him in the near future. Yeah, we certainly hope so. And uh, yeah, I don't think it's stated enough. It, it is tough playing as that number one seed. It, it's not the norm that we would see from a, a Djokovic fed Nadal who seemed to take care of business so often. There is that extra pressure. Uh, but, you know, with this victory and a pretty steady season, he's seventh in the race to Turin right now for the ATP finals. Do you think he's one of the kind of top eight who belongs? And what are your thoughts, I guess, uh, where he fits in, I guess, with the ATP landscape uh, among the best players. For sure, I'd put him top eight. And I, I think um, the consistency has been there. Uh, grass court season, he he would have wanted that to go a little better. But look, it's such a short window in the season and not a lot of players have kind of the experience of competing on that surface for many years. So that's already kind of a factor against him. But uh, I, I mean, look, he, he started showing signs of great form in Melbourne when he was two sets to love up and Daniil Medvedev uh, partway through the tournament there. And... Uh, He's definitely kind of shown himself time and again. I think, I think to be honest with you, this season is a very difficult season to kind of rank players because of inconsistencies across the board. I mentioned Medvedev. He's not mm-hmm. been able to compete at every tournament. Obviously, there, there are players who have certain stances on the vaccine and they haven't been able to compete at every event. So I, I think in terms of actually ranking players as to where they fit because some have appeared here and others have appeared there and it's not always been kind of in sync with each other it is quite difficult to match it up but in in terms of what he's achieved across the board this season it's absolutely right that he should be in contention for the finals because he has uh, consistently proven himself in big matchups and on big stages I feel. Well, we love to hear that. And, you know, Ben and I are always uh, pretty good at uh, looking at the positive side of our Canadian players. But sometimes we can get a little critical. So it's always nice to hear from an outsider, you know, some 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 great news about uh, where the Canadians are fitting in. So appreciate that. Um, I want to get a little bit into your tennis commentary role and, and your rise there towards uh, the upper echelons of that world. And tennis fans can have some pretty strong opinions about tennis commentators, what they like to hear what they don't like to hear in a match. Um, I mean, I can't think of a role in tennis that gets as highly critiqued, certainly by tennis Twitter, what they don't like to hear from tennis commentators. How have you evolved in that role since you started? And what do you try to bring to the table when you're in front of the mic? Really good questions and really good points as well. Um, I I think that um, as I've I've gone along, I 
I like listening back to myself and I don't like listening back to myself because when you listen back to commentary from a year or so prior, you can always hear things that you wish you'd done differently and always hear things that you want to improve. My big thing with the commentary is um, my love for the game. I never try and hold back that passion. I want that to come across. And I think if you if you maintain a genuine love for the game, then there is going to be a freshness about your commentary you're going to be following tennis across the boards. Uh, I do a lot of tennis coverage at the lower levels of the sport. And I think that comes in very handy because, uh, for example, I just made my uh, commentary debut for the ATP World Feed on TV doing a 250 event. There, there were players in that draw that were not so well known to the average fan. Uh, but, I, but I do tend to watch a lot of tennis further down the rankings ladder these days. So I, I know some of these players one-on-one, -on -one, particularly in British circles. Um, I have background information that I try and sprinkle in. I, I think a big thing in terms of keeping commentary interesting is getting the right balance. And early days, I think, because I love the tennis so much, I was very much the match point by point analysis 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 and, and sometimes it's kind of knowing when to breathe knowing when to sprinkle information in knowing when to carry a relevant talking point that's going to bring a different angle and a different perspective to what's going on on the court and I think that that is something that you you do kind of work out as you go along the more you do you get a feel for the moment and when is the right thing to talk about a certain subject or to draw out a certain point um and while i'm talking about this i think i will say one thing because i was one of those people before i was commentating that i would sit there and a commentator would say something i didn't like and i'd be like oh that's silly or why would you make <laughs> a comment like that i i've very much grown to appreciate that commentators get tired. Like these works, uh, the, these work weeks can get very heavy and very long. Um, not everyone is as young as they once were either, which factors. And you can, I don't know, I, there, there are matches I've done, for example, where I said one thing in the moment and I've watched the match or part of the match back in a couple of weeks' time. And I'm like, why on earth did you not draw out this point? Or your commentary sounds very basic here compared to what you could have said. And honestly, 50% of the time, it's just the fatigue, the mental fatigue sometimes, because you might be doing a, a string of, well, I mean, the most that I do is probably four or five matches in a row. You know, sometimes sometimes that, that does have an what? impact in terms of concentration levels and the way that you're analyzing. Um, so, so that is something to bear in mind, I think, when you listen to the commentary. I, I mean, there is sometimes poor commentary out there and there are, there are going to be people that say things that maybe you don't agree with but you don't know what their situation is either so I think being on this side of the microphone that's been quite insightful to me it, it's a job I would never ever want to do to be perfectly honest with you so kudos <laughs> to you for putting yourself in that position and it's amazing to me the parallels though between that and podcasting as I'm listening to you I'm like Oh, yeah, I cringe when I listen back to our early podcast <laughs> that we did, sure. you know, um, but it really resonated with me when you said bringing your passion to the table is, is so important. I think it's the same for me and Ben when we're podcasting that that's got to come across first and foremost, how much we love the sport, care about the sport. Um, what, what is the hardest part of the job? I think of, you know, some of the times when you're commentating by yourself and have to carry a long match or a, a string of matches without anyone else in the booth or is it perhaps covering a match with a player you've never seen play before and you've done some research but you don't know them know them um or maybe both of those of you just kind of talk about the, the challenges that those would bring 
Yeah, there are challenges for sure. I think that's part of what makes the job interesting and actually part of what forces you to improve because you have to be in those situations where you, you need to better yourself. You need to think that bit harder about how to uh, produce a good product at the end of the day. Uh, I think in terms of solo commentary, I was very fortunate that I got started as a solo commentator. And that might sound like a weird thing to say, uh, but getting started for the WTA in 2018, 2019, uh, I did so many outside court matches where I was just on my own. So it forced me to do a lot of research uh, to really think about how I was pacing myself during the match. I think the key with commentary sometimes is knowing what when not to talk as much as when to talk there was there's actually one commentator in the industry who quite early on gave me the advice when you're solo try and leave at least two points each game where you don't say anything yeah, just to let let the picture breathe you know people they this i think the same commentator said to me if people come to watch tennis with a bit of commentary they don't come to listen to the commentary and watch tennis it's got to be that way around mm. so you've got to have that kind of sensitivity to the listener and that ability to kind of break down uh, what needs to be said when. Um, it, I think I find it tougher actually when there's a, a player on court that is lesser known and I don't know them myself because then you've got to think of different ways to color the commentary. You won't have a lot of background information or personal information on the player. So can you draw out a key talking point, maybe link something that's happening in the match up to things that are happening on a, a more international level within the sport, kind of, kind of different links that you can find to freshen things up and make it interesting and make people think. Uh, I think that's something that I can improve at, to be honest with you. I think sometimes I get so into the match at hand that I can forget to look at the broader picture sometimes. Uh, but I think that's all part of what comes together to make it an enjoyable watch and listen for whoever's tuning in. And uh, I mean, you just you mentioned earlier how you did work uh, a bigger tournament that ATP 250 in, in Seoul, uh, South Korea, uh, covering for for tennis TV. What was that experience like just taking on a, a bigger tournament? Did you feel like when you were in the booth, this is a, a bigger stage that that I'm on and it's something uh, even even more serious than uh, a few of those ITF events you're often working I think the funny thing is, I think what made me feel like it was a big occasion was uh, scrolling social media afterwards and hearing my voice on the tennis TV clips. Yeah. Because, you know, <laughs> those, are, those are things that we, I mean, it's all over social media, isn't it? They, they've got a great profile, tennis TV. So I think, honestly, at the back of my mind, maybe it was a little goal to get myself to that position where one day it would be my voice on those clips and mm -hmm. on the highlights. And uh, I saw some really nice comments, which was very nice. Um, but I think to be, to be completely honest with you it's I think it's funny kind of the trajectory that my career has taken and it's almost like a little bit of a roller coaster because I'd commentated on three of the four grand slams before I got anywhere near the tv world feed for ATP right. so for example I'm commentating on your man Denis Shapovalov in Seoul but I've already commentated on him playing Rafael Nadal on Rod Laver Arena in Melbourne. So I, I didn't feel like I was inferior because I, I have covered these players before and I have covered big tournaments before. Obviously, for me, it was a big deal because I, I really respect the 
you know that that level of tennis and the, the ATP World Feed is a huge deal. Um, but but I had done World Feed as well for radio for ATP Tennis Radio at the back end of last year. So I think it was quite nicely aligned that I could kind of appreciate the um, importance of the occasion for my career and how big of a deal it was, but also know that I had these other experiences behind me that meant that um, I wasn't going to be panicking about my ability to hold up when I when I sat down with the mic. So I, I think, uh, yeah, I think it went well. I really enjoyed that tournament. I think it went as well as it could have done. And I've got to give a shout out. I loved the crowd. I think it's the best mm-hmm. tennis crowd I've ever seen. They hadn't seen a tournament stage there at that level since 1996, which to put it in to perspective was before I was born and they just loved it they they absolutely embraced it and I think you can see some big atmospheres at tennis events in terms of the crowd but they're not always nice vibes I mean if we look at Paris Masters a year ago it's a little bit like a sporting amphitheater in some ways but these fans were just so passionate and so um grateful for the opportunity to watch the tournament and I think all the players really felt that as well so it was uh yeah a great week and I'm really glad I got to cover that event yeah I'm gonna have to to come to terms with the fact that you weren't born yet in 1996 (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't have thrown that one out there should I but that really put it in perspective for me that it it had been that long since they got to come in the flesh and and see an event of that standard uh, of that level so yeah it was a big deal for them and you could sense it yeah, and uh, that that was another great tournament for Denis Shapovalov. Just a quick segue there. He's after a what I would call certainly a rocky and and tough, challenging year. Seems to be coming together with his form, and I felt like Sewell was a bit of a, a breakthrough moment where we saw Dennis kind of impose his game again. Did did you feel that just watching up close and commentating? Yeah, massively, massively. I was really impressed. I think, now, was it his semi-final? There was a certain match that he won really comprehensively. And I thought, this this is the Denis Shapovalov that we know. You know, he, he's uh, he, he's got such a great game when it's on, so able to impose himself. And it's pretty breathtaking, honestly, what he's able to do when he's really feeling it. I, I think my one concern for him is we mentioned that finals record for Felix Auger-Aliassime and, mm-hmm. and Shapovalov himself is kind of starting to go in that direction he reached that final in Seoul and lost it so I think he's won one lost four yeah. when it comes to ATP finals and the thing with Shapovalov's game I mean he's got a great serve he can attack with the backhand he can get himself up the court and he's looking to keep those points quite clipped and quite concise the thing with that game style which he has shown that he is going to commit to across the board win or lose you have to have 100% confidence in yourself and 100% back yourself all the way through every single match. There is no room for doubt because if there is that even slight hesitation, you're not going to find your marks. And I think when he's got that kind of a record now in finals, which he will be aware of, mentally, I think from an outside perspective, and he can tell me that I'm wrong for sure, but I, I think that the longer you go, and don't have success, surely the more that is going to factor in terms of your own self-confidence. So um, hopefully he can uh, sort that out. I mean, he's playing the kind of tennis to keep getting himself in those positions to be competing for trophies. And it'll probably be quite encouraging to see the way Felix has turned things around because he's heading in a really nice direction now. And uh, there used to be a a real disaster zone for him, those ATP finals. So, Mm -hmm. you know, if if you've got the talent, if you've got the work ethic, which I know Shapovalov has, uh, there's a lot of possibility for him in the near future. 
Yeah, well said. And and we certainly like what we've seen from both of them as the season, you know, nears its conclusion. Um, as I was getting ready to uh, to do the podcast with you guys today, I'm going through your, your Twitter, Abigail, and just kind of catching up on the latest things that we're seeing there from you. And one of them was uh, Tennis in the UK podcast, which it seems like you are following in our footsteps in a sense <laughs> with that. So uh, why don't you fill us in on that initiative and, and what your plans are there? Yeah, I'll give you guys some credit for podcast inspiration, uh, podcasting, <laughs> and yeah, you're welcome. Um, th- that kind of thing has, uh, I mean, it's been on my mind for a little while. I've since I was at university, okay, studying sports journalism, I've often been around the ITF level events in the UK and uh, just doing social media coverage, interviewing the players, that kind of thing. Uh, and when I've had a free week in my diary, when I've not been commentating this season. I've been getting along to these ITF events and there are so many of them now. The LTA have done a great job of increasing the number of competitions in the UK since the last time we had a full calendar in 2019. And I've always wanted to do more to help the lower levels of the sport, to bring more attention to them so that maybe financially the situation improves for players and that kind of thing. Uh, Just having been around them, I know the, the quality and the level of tennis that is there. I mean, those events are the first places that I met Jack Draper, Emma Raducanu, all these kinds of players who who then came through very quickly. Um, and it was just actually a couple of weeks ago, I was driving to the, the final in Sheffield for one of the M25, 25K level events. And I thought, look, Abigail, you're going to be in the country for the next few weeks. You're going to be around these events. If you, if you don't do something now, it's just not going to happen. So I sat down one of the players that I knew. We had a 30-minute chat and I started a podcast called Tennis in the UK, the aim of which is to bring more of a profile to these kind of entry-level pro tournaments that we have in the UK. Um, I'll mix that up with other events that we have. Obviously, there's the grass court season, the Billie Jean King Cup finals are coming in the the near future. So, So hopefully you know if we can get some episodes on those as well then it it will continue to to bring more of a spotlight to these players that just don't have it compared to the the players that we're covering on the ATP tour and WTA tour Uh, so that's tennis in the UK I essentially on a, a week by week basis keep people up to date with what is happening in tennis in the UK when Wimbledon is not on TV because I think people would be surprised by I think the lack of tennis knowledge outside of that grass court swing in Great Britain we have these quality events going on uh, that are generally free entry as well and and people don't know about them you know we've got some high profile ITF events coming up in the next few weeks the likes of Heather Watson and Harriet Dark competing with you know top rankings Uh, yeah I just want those events to get the attention they deserve and and that's the quest of the podcast well that's fantastic and we'll definitely be checking it out and promoting it here on match point canada for you so again that's tennis in the Thank uk you. podcast with abigail johnson and i definitely like that that desire to promote the sport at the the i don't want to say the lower levels but the grassroots level and ben and i are sure. going to be attending the 60k itf tevlin here in toronto next week and amazing similar thing trying to promote those up and coming well for us it'll be canadians but definitely uh, relatable yeah, absolutely. And I, I love that. And honestly, to be to be honest with you, I wanted to do a podcast that covered ITF events across the globe, but there's just so many of them, you know, <laughs> that, the, the quantity of them on a week in, week out basis. But absolutely, look, these events are happening in Canada, America, everywhere you go, essentially, in the world, you're going to find some ITF events. So if you're near to them, get across them, support them, because that's how we grow the game. So enjoy that one, guys. That'll be awesome. 
Oh, thank you so much. And uh, Abigail, thanks so much as always for your time. It was a, a delight to have you back on, on the podcast and all the best for the rest of the season. We'll be uh, eagerly following your work. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, guys. Thank you. Thanks. That was Abigail Johnson. Uh, you can find her work all over Twitter at Abigail Johnson. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. And Mike, just a quick mention of, of sorts. I mean, you mentioned the Tevlin Challenger, I should say, and an ATP Challenger this past week in Fairfield. We're seeing more progress from Canadian Gabriel Diallo, who made the finals there, losing to Michael Mamo, a 21-year-old now up to 250 in the world. So that's an awesome result. And uh, just looking over to the WTA side as well, San Diego Open. Iga Sviantek collects her eighth career title of the season, um, winning this title over Donna Vekic and Bianca Andreescu with pretty good tournament. She uh, had a tough three-set win over Samsonova uh, before going out to Coco Goff in three sets. So some nice progress from, from BB here as the season winds down. Yeah, and just a quick note about Diallo. I really think being a part of the Canadian Davis Cup squad uh, earlier this fall was really key for him, being around Felix, being around Vashik. Um, and, and just getting the opportunity to sort of soak things in from those those more established players. So who knows if that has any correlation to uh, some of the success he's having right now. Bianca, great to see her um, having a big win because Samsonova has been such a uh, on-fire player throughout the entire summer. So that was a good one. And Coco Goff, I mean, she led by a break in that final set. So you got to try yeah. and look at the positive of, of that scenario. And again, I feel like I've been saying this for a while that she's on the cusp of having that breakthrough, and maybe it's going to be in Guadalajara coming up here. Uh, also, Canadian Gabby Dabrowski makes the finals with Julianne almost losing also to Coco Goff and Jessica Pagula. 10-4 in a Champions tiebreak, so a real close one for Gabby. And that makes three straight finals for Gabby following her quarterfinal result at the U.S. Open. So she's having a very, very strong push here this fall. Yeah, very, very impressive. And, of course, Goff and Pagula both... Uh had a great tournament in singles and doubles. We've seen that many times. Iga defeating Goff in the quarterfinals before moving on to, as I said, eighth title of the season. She's just far and away been uh, the best player uh, this season, just on the planet. Well-deserved world number one. Guadalajara, this is sort of the last big WTA event that we have for the season before we get to that WTA finals and I suppose internationally the Billie Jean King Cup. Uh, but it is a WTA 1000. Iga won't be there. Annette Contivate won't be there. But uh, we have a pack draw, a lot of top 20 players. And it's kind of our final opportunity to make a push in the Tennis Canada Bracket Challenge. Hopefully some redemption uh, for our podcast if we can uh, get some predictions right. And we have Canadians Bianca, Layla, Rebecca Marino qualified. And Jeannie Bouchard actually has a wild card here as well. Did you get your bracket picks in, by the way? My picks are in. Um I'm I'm going I don't want to say it's not really off the board because she's had a very good season when she has played Danielle Collins played really well this past week in San Diego I like the way the draw is shaping up for her so I, I'm going with a bit of an underdog in Danielle Collins to win this title I feel she'll she'll play well in the United States as well and of course you know she made the finals of that Australian Open to start the year I made a few off the board picks as well but it's because I think this is the last event of the bracket challenge maybe and so I really want to get up. I'm in 59th place right now, which I think overall is not bad. No, but I think I got to make some bold picks if I want to try and get up <laughs> towards the top 20, you know? So yeah. uh, that's, that's what I went with. And 
in terms of Guadalajara, I mean, you know who plays great in Mexico, right? Is Leilani Fernandez. So uh, very you know, true. Wouldn't be surprised if she takes it up a notch here, but she does get a tough starter with Belinda Bencic. So that's not an easy way to sort of uh, you know dip your toe into the tournament draw. Bianca gets Teichman, who's a, a fair opponent, a tough opponent. Uh, Rebecca Marino went through qualifying, two tough matches in qualifying, but came through. She gets American Ann Lee. And then Jeannie, great to see Jeannie. And she's got a good start against Kayla Day, who's ranked somewhere in the, the 200s, I believe, or low 100s. So that's as good as you can hope for at a, at a WT 1000 event. And Jeannie's looked good in the small sample size we've seen since she's been back. So hoping she can continue that and give her the confidence for hopefully a full and healthy 2023 on the WTA. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, last tournament, San Diego, she dropped her first set before uh, pulling out with an injury, but I guess she is fine because she is signed up to play, which is fantastic. Uh, we mentioned quickly, and we'll wrap there, the Tevlin Challenger upcoming our final week of October, and it's just over at the Aviva Center. So if you have a free week, if you have time, um, you can absolutely come and check it out. Should be a great event. Uh, Mike, you and I will be down there. I know a couple players already confirmed. Um, Miriam Orkland, actually the girlfriend of Dennis Shapovalov, and she's played this event before. She's number 130 in the world. I believe she's signed up. Uh, Catherine Sebov, the Canadian, is currently on the list as well. And, uh, you know, a handful of great players between that 100-300 range that are always worth seeing. Like, it's very high-level tennis. Abigail Johnson could, of course, attest to that. You get a lot of young Canadian players coming up. Vicky Maboko and Kayla Cross, undoubtedly, I'm sure, will be receiving wild cards as they did at the National Bank Open earlier this summer. Uh, a lot of American players coming too, including our friend Kennedy Schaefer, who's appeared on the podcast before as well. So it's a great mix of players, young up-and-coming players, uh, some college players looking for some points and some ranking, uh, some prize money. And, uh, and it's free. So if you're in Toronto, definitely swing by and, and check it out the week of October 24th. There you go. You have been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We thank our guest Abigail Johnson for this week, guys. We will talk to you next time.